Section 1 of An Explorer in the Air Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham. First Flights. Chapter 1. First Flights. In the latter part of 1916, I had the opportunity of hearing Mr. Herbert Bayard Swope of the New York World tell of conditions in Germany as he had seen them that summer. He convinced me of several things which had not been clear in the censored press dispatches. One was that the British Navy had by no means solved the problem of the German submarines, although the small number of sinkings at that time was so interpreted in our newspapers. A corollary was that Germany was voluntarily restraining her piratical activities until such time as she could secure enough submarines to make an overwhelming drive on transoceanic commerce, and, finally, that such a drive was coming before very long. This information from such a well-posted source led me to the conclusion, about the 1st of December, that we should be at war with Germany within six months. My next thought, naturally, was the question, in what field would my training as an explorer offer the best opportunity for service? Personal experience with mules, Spanish Americans, pack oxen, Indians, ruined Inca cities, and Andean highlands would be of little use in France. A few days later, a distinguished member of the Yale Mathematical Faculty brought back from a scientific meeting in Boston news regarding the remarkable progress that aviation was making on the Western Front. Major General George O. Squire, then Lieutenant Colonel in the Signal Corps, had just returned from many months of service as American military attaché with the British Army. Himself a scientific investigator of the first rank, one of the few Army officers to have taken a Ph.D. on the side after graduating from West Point and while serving as a second lieutenant at an Army post not far from Johns Hopkins University, he had thrilled his hearers at the Boston meeting with a vivid account of the hundreds of airplanes then in use, and which the censor had permitted us to learn little or nothing about. General Squire's contagious enthusiasm and his remarkable vision had so infected my friend the mathematician that I too caught the disease and became a crank on winning the war in the air. A fortunate circumstance took me to Baltimore about this time, where Professor J. S. Ames of Johns Hopkins, a keen student of aerodynamics, confirmed my belief that a rapid development of the Allied Air Service was the best way to defeat Germany quickly. Another bit of good fortune enabled me to go to Miami, Florida in February 1917, and there to talk with Glenn Curtis, perhaps the most daring of all American inventors. His fondness for going faster than anybody else, and his willingness to be content with doing it only once, had led him to make a remarkable number of records, both on land and sea, as well as in the air. With Orville Wright, he represented America's leadership in the early development of practical flying. 
his assurance that any one who could ride horseback and sail a boat could learn to fly and a remarkable record for safety made by his flying boats led me to decide to attempt some flights his statement that there were at that time less than twenty-five competent flying instructors in the united states seemed to open the door of opportunity although then forty-one years old it seemed to me that with the experience i had had in riding mules for months at a time in venezuela colombia and peru there was some hope that the new field of exploration might not prove too difficult especially as i have also always been fond of sailing my first flight was on march the third the roar of the engine and the terrific wind pressure encountered in sitting out in front of the old f-type flying boat spoiled the pleasure and nearly overcame the thrill of that first experience for two weeks i took frequent flights with harold kantner over the beautiful waters of biscayne bay kantner's skill as pilot and the experience which he had gained during the months that he had been employed in teaching flying in the italian navy gave me great confidence in his ability nevertheless i looked with envy at the more speedy army planes on march seventeenth i had my first ride in a land machine a j n four piloted by roger janus for a time i took lessons on both land and water but after about ten hours work in the flying boat gave it up for military tractors as we called them then the report of the executive committee of the national advisory committee for aeronautics published about this time by dr charles d walcott gave me the information that larger plans were being made for aeronautics in the army than in the navy the army had more room for beginners so my first idea of going in for seaplane flying was given up in order to learn all i could about military as distinguished from naval aeronautics fortunately the curtis company had established a school near miami where some forty or fifty sergeants in the aviation section of the signal enlisted reserve corps were being taught to fly at the expense of the government a few civilians were admitted and thanks to the courtesy of mr curtis i was permitted to enjoy the privileges of the school in the light of what america afterwards did in the way of flying schools that school now seems ridiculously small and inadequate but considering the facilities which then existed we felt that we were fortunate indeed there were generally three or four planes in commission but sometimes only one a severe hailstorm which came at a time when there were no hangars at the school made more than two hundred holes in the wings of the oldest and put all ships out of commission for a while accidents were frequent connecting rods broke in mid-air and frightened new pilots by smashing holes in crankcases roger janus went up one day to test out a newly assembled plane and while turning a loop had the novel experience of having his propeller fly to pieces his great skill as a pilot however stood him in good stead and he made a perfect landing on the usual little bit of turf known as the airdrome inspection of what was left of the hub of the propeller showed that the fault was with some dishonest propeller manufacturer the first series of holes bored for the bolts which were to fasten it in place had been abandoned and plugged up 
this naturally weakened the hub to such an extent that as soon as any strain was put upon it the solid wood that was left gave way and the propeller disappeared we thought little of possible interior injury to planes my first solo flight was made on an old ship that had been turned over on its back twice during the preceding forty-eight hours in each case a new propeller had been put on a caban and strut had been renewed and that was all we didn't worry about the longer runs we were glad enough to get a chance to fly at all one day the student whose turn preceded mine had engine failure after he had been up about seven minutes as soon as his engine stopped he switched off the magneto and glided in overreaching the small field and landing in the long grass and shrubs the mechanics at once went out to see what the matter was made a successful attempt to start the engine listened long enough to convince themselves there was nothing wrong and then hauled the plane back to the landing field the young pilot was reprimanded for having made an unnecessary landing and told to go up again which he declined to do so the machine was handed over to me two days before i had made my first solo flight and this was to be my third attempt without a teacher the motor started off well and i had attained some little altitude after flying for about seven minutes when the motor unaccountably stopped i switched off and started to glide for the field when it occurred to me that this trouble might not be anything serious and would only lead to my getting reprimanded as had my predecessor so i switched on again and to my delight the engine took hold and went very nicely for about a minute various switchings on and off succeeded in making the motor run occasionally until i noticed that the wind was driving me some distance away from that little spot of dried everglade land that meant safety between me and the airdrome however was one of the dredged everglade drainage canals with twenty-five or thirty feet of limestone rock piled up on each bank if i had to land at this side of the canal it would mean being tipped upside down for the dried muck was too soft to allow the landing wheels to run on it consequently the temptation to extend the glide and get over the canal to the hard ground beyond was irresistible then too the engine occasionally gave a burst or two which helped for a few seconds at a time i got over the first bank of the canal all right and by nosing down toward the water picked up just enough speed to clear the other bank and enable me to pancake in the sand on the edge of the airdrome fortunately no damage was done it certainly was wonderful what those old jn fours could stand by the time the mechanics got out to the plane they were able to start up the engine it ran nicely for a few minutes then stopped after a while somebody found out what was the trouble the night before an enthusiastic pilot in his mad desire to get in a few moments flying before dark had hastily filled the gas tank and taken his flight without putting back the ventilated screw top he went home with it in his pocket the next morning the sergeant whose duty it was to fill the tank not being able to locate the proper plug hunted around in the little machine shop until he found one that fitted and thoughtlessly put it on although it had no air vent in it consequently after a little gasoline had run down out of the tank into the carburetor a partial vacuum formed and prevented the engine from getting any gas until some air could leak in and release a little 
Hence the strange behavior of what might have been a badly crashed engine. One day a newly assembled plane, the wings of which were not exactly of the same pattern, was piloted by an inexperienced teacher who had with him a new pupil on his first or second flight. They got into a tailspin and fell over 1,500 feet, making a complete crash. The engine was partially buried in the ground and the plane was so flattened out that hardly any of it was more than a foot above the surface. It seemed like a miracle that neither one of the occupants was killed. Both of them were out of the hospital and hobbling around in about ten days. It gave us more confidence to see what might happen without a fatal ending. There was plenty of opportunity to learn practical rigging and fitting. Tom D., who had been with the Curtis Company for several years, and who had forgotten more about airplanes than most of the world would ever learn, was always willing to teach us how to repair damaged planes, but he had no use for loafers or gamblers. One day, Sergeant, later Captain, Blake arrived as the government representative. He had been in the Signal Corps for many years, and was an excellent type of the old regular army sergeant. He had rather a hard time with the noisy group of ambitious young pilots, who were impatient at delays in securing proper training equipment, and who saw little to be gained in doing squads right for an hour in the broiling tropical sun. Nevertheless, they stuck to it faithfully. In the course of the next year and a half, several of them made enviable records in the air service. At least four were promoted to captaincies. Most conscientious of all, and most uniformly cheerful in the performance of his duty, was Hamilton Coolidge of Groton and Harvard, who later earned the Distinguished Service Cross and was one of the American aces. He was killed by a direct hit from an anti-aircraft gun. Others included John Mitchell, who also became a captain in the air service and commanded a squadron at the front. Fred Harvey, a born flyer, who was so greatly appreciated that he was not permitted to go abroad until shortly before the armistice was signed. And Arthur Richmond, who, like Harvey, was promoted to a captaincy for distinguished service in American training schools. But, although he spoke French fluently, was denied the privilege of getting to France. Never in my life have I felt so old as I did during the two months of association with this brilliant group of young pilots, who had all been born while I was in college, or since I had graduated, and whose youth and skill were to entitle them to render most meritorious and distinguished service in helping to win the war in the air. As soon as war was declared, I telegraphed the Adjutant-General to ask that my former commission as Captain in the 10th Field Artillery, Connecticut National Guard, the so-called Yale Batteries, which I had resigned after the regiment was demobilized, be renewed, and that I be given flying duty. His reply was an application blank for the aviation section of the Signal Officers Reserve Corps. This I filled out and sent with a letter to General Squire, telling him why it seemed to me that, even though well past the pilot's age limit of thirty years, I might be of use at least as an instructor in the air service. On April the 30th, I passed my final test for the Aero Club license and was breveted as an aviator pilot. The next day, 
greatly to my joy i had a telegram from general squire asking me to come to washington immediately to assist in selecting and training aviators needless to say i took the next train general squire had recently been made chief signal officer of the army and as such was in charge of all army air service activities he explained that he had sent for me because he believed my experience in exploration and teaching with the few months of intensive military training with the yale batteries and flying at miami had given me a good preparation for the new undertaking he said the first thing to do was to go to toronto just what i was to do in toronto apart from the fact that representatives of several universities were to meet me there was not quite clear but general squire said that if i would simply announce my arrival in washington to dr william f durand the executive secretary of the national advisory committee for aeronautics he would explain the whole situation and tell me what to do dr durand's office was in the muncie building that busy hive which contained so many of the activities of the national council of defense and which at that time seemed to be the home of most of the dollar a year men he greeted me with the disconcerting question what brings you to washington however matters were soon explained and he very kindly gave me letters of introduction to the representatives of the universities of california texas illinois ohio cornell and the massachusetts institute of technology who had been invited to go to toronto to see how the university of toronto was cooperating with the royal flying corps in giving ground school training to would-be military aviators no one appeared to know exactly how the plan was to be worked out in this country the fact was that our national policy of unpreparedness had brought us actually into the greatest of all wars without adequate plans for training aviators although everyone knew we would need them by the hundred it may not be out of place to state here that during the first few months of my duty in washington the officer who under general squire was in immediate charge of the aviation section of the signal corps was not a pilot had only been up once or twice was frankly afraid to fly even as an observer and went so far as to say to me that for the father of seven sons to take flying lessons showed that he did not love his children i could not help wondering whether the secretary of war would expect an officer who was afraid of riding horseback to direct the fortunes of the mounted service school or even command a cavalry regiment successfully End of First Flights